Book TV continues now on C-SPAN 2, television for serious readers. Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, Anuratha Bhagwati reflects on her time in the Marine Corps and her efforts to overturn the ban on women in combat. She's interviewed by retired Marine Corps officer Kate Germano, author of Fight Like a Girl. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. I just want to start by saying what a pleasure it is to have this opportunity with you, Anuradha. I, I have to let the audience know, they may not be aware, but when I uh, was having a lot of trouble with the Marine Corps related to gender issues, you were one of the first people who reached out to me to express concern and solidarity. And I have to tell you, just uh, from a Marine and Marine perspective, that was really one of the most meaningful experiences that I've had. So thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you. Thanks for doing this with me. So let's just dive right in. That's okay. Um, you know, I recently watched an interview where you talked about the title of your book, and you mentioned that the, the title is basically in reference to Conduct Unbecoming from the Uniform Code of Military Justice. But as I read the book, one of the things that stuck out to me, among many, was that you talk a lot about finding yourself, trying to find yourself, and really what your purpose, what you're meant to be in life and so my takeaway from the title prior to reading the uh, previous interview that you did was really that it's about your struggle to undo or really unbecome many of the things that your parents taught you or had expected of you, um, only to have to unbecome again after you left the Marine Corps. So can you tell us more about where you are kind of in that process? Yeah, I had fun with the title, actually. Uh, unbecoming means so many different things, and I think any interpretation is probably correct in this situation. So I, absolutely, it's a military justice term, and I wanted to play with that a little bit. Uh, you know, very literally, I observed uh, Marines doing things that I, I found unbecoming and certainly um, acts that were illegal, including sexual uh, violence against fellow service members. Um, but that that was almost the the easiest thing to interpret because I also got very real about my own my own behavior, just being a you know a young adult and trying to find my way around the Marines. Um, and even prior to the Marine Corps, um, growing up in a, a fairly strict conservative Indian household and being an only child in that household, so having a lot of pressure from my parents. Um, and you know they were first generation immigrants, literally came to. Uh, to the United States um, on ships over the Atlantic Ocean, which is a hard thing to, I think, imagine or remember. <laughs> uh, right. But, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure on me to succeed academically. And also, um, you know, I like to t tell people American society is so different than um, than Indian culture um, in, in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I or my parents took for granted was this idea that I would grow up with uh, being surrounded by kids and families who prioritize things like, like what's important to the child, like mm -hmm. what interests um, are important to the child. What does a child want to be when she or he grows up? You know, that was like, that was not a thing for Indian right. kids. And so right. joy was not cultivated in my early life. Uh, it just, you know, wasn't the way we did things. And so it was all about studies um, I had very little say in what I was doing. And the things I love to do most, uh, like sports and art, were just not encouraged. Or if I did them, it was just to get into um, an elite school where I would right. study even harder. It, right. So it was you know, just like a stepping stone to the next academic pursuit. But in and of itself, one wasn't supposed to you know, be an artist or an athlete or any of these things. So sure. 
I had to leave some of that behind at some point. You know, when my parents forbid me to play basketball at, at uh, you know, after high school, even though it was my favorite thing in the world. And, you know, I was, I was good enough at it to keep on playing. But, um, you know, having, having these activities stripped away, I really, I became quite depressed. And so in my young adult life, I really didn't know who I was or what I wanted to do because it was, it was my parents' right. voices in my head that right. really dictated everything. I didn't even know what my own voice was. And I think, you know, kids have this instinct. It's like, you know, who, is this me speaking or right. is this, you know, the person who raised me actually determining what I'm doing? And joining the Marine Corps was, was my way of breaking away from all of that parental indoctrination, that cultural indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was very extreme because I had no background in the military. Right. I, I hadn't had any relatives or close friends. So I, I just kind of was going out on a limb and, and saying, all right, see you, Dad, see you, Mom. <laughs> I'm doing this, and, and you, you can't follow me. You can't control what I'm going to do after that. And let's just talk about that one uh, thing very quickly just for the audience because I'm not sure if they're familiar with the Marine Corps as an institution. So uh, the United States, most people aren't aware that the Marine Corps is the smallest branch of the service. But in addition to being the smallest branch of the service, it's the service with the fewest women. And so I'd like to get your thoughts. You know, we talk a lot about intersectionality as part of the Me Too movement. And your story is obviously a brilliant representation of what it's like not only to be a woman in such a uh, minority population in a very testosterone-driven organization, but you're also a woman of color. You are also bisexual. And this is all in an environment where no form of diversity is really overtly seen as a positive for the institution. Um, one of the things that I'm always struck by is how the Marine Corps really denies any form of gender as a, a positive. In fact, there was a poster that was recently produced that has a photo of a female Marine, you've probably seen it, but the slogan is essentially, there are no female Marines, just Marines. And it's like, well, that's not really true. Why can't I be a female Marine and compete and be seen as equal? Um, so one of the things that you write about that I that struck me right off the bat, because we have a very shared uh, experience, is that you observe early on that the Marine Corps view of equality is really based on a false premise. And there are a lot of female Marines who have fallen into the trap of thinking, we do everything the men do, but the reality is you saw firsthand right off the bat that that wasn't really true. We didn't run to the same standards. We didn't do pull-ups. And so I'd like to read an excerpt from the book um, just to set the stage for this part of the discussion, if that's okay. So you write that I eventually came to know the flexed arm hang, which was part of the physical fitness test for women Marines until recently. It wasn't a test of strength, but it was a glaring symbol that separated women from the hardworking men who made up the real Marine Corps. It was a way to quietly integrate women into the Marines without actually letting us dream big. It was just one of the many humiliations that bonded all women in the Corps. Can you talk about your experience and how that sort of shaped your perceptions of gender when you joined? Yes, I think that uh, I was ready for some kind of mental agony going into the Marines. You know, we all grow up. I mean, even kids who have no uh, sort of concept or desire to join the military, we all grow up with this kind of... um, Hollywood notion of having right. our, our limits tested. And you write about you know, watching so, you know, something rough is ahead. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I was, I, I saw all the movies, and you know, G.I. Jane was the formative one for me, of course, because Demi Moore was doing something at the time that was unthinkable, joining the Navy right. SEALs. And so, um, 
But yeah, joining joining the Marine Corps, um, I expected to be treated the same, and it was very odd not to be treated like the guys. And so we, you know, we were in segregated. Um, we were in a segregated platoon uh, of women uh, trained by female drill instructors. Mm -hmm. And I think if the training had been the exact same, I, I, I might not have cared as much. I think there, you know, people oftentimes forget, you know, days or weeks of officer candidate school or boot camp because it's just a haze of, you know, yelling and running and doing so much on so little sleep that it, it goes by pretty fast for some of us. But I think the, the, the double physical standards were the thing that bothered me the most. Um, and there was also... You know, and, 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 you know, you alluded to this passage or you read this passage in which the flexed arm hang for women in the Marines was really, it was so humiliating for me because because I could do pull-ups and like all women could do pull-ups if, if we all right. trained to do pull-ups. It's just a matter of, of, you know, of getting on the bar and training over time. Uh, I don't know a single person who has not been able to do that who's been able-bodied. Um, and so, and you know, we're seeing even today in Marine Corps policy that now pull-ups are optional for women, but still not required for physical fitness tests, which which blows my mind because, in fact, those who are pursuing the pull-ups as an option are are not only meeting the expectations set by the Marine Corps, but exceeding them. And right. so, the Marine Corps is having to raise those pull-up standards That's again right. for women. Right. You know, so it's you know, I, I chuckled pretty hard when I heard that, but. You know, it's no surprise for us, right? Who who know this? That like when you when you when you make the institution a meritocracy, when actually standards are are the same for men and women, women will absolutely meet the standards, and it, and it works better for everyone. There's no resentment among men. In fact, there's a healthy competition, and and everyone excels. Um, and so, the other thing that shocked me going through officer candidate school in those first few weeks of training. Was, was the double standard, not just in physical fitness uh, terms, but kind of in cultural terms. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's separate hair regulations for women. There's, you know, I, I think I described it in my book as, as uh, an, an America's next top model, model scenario where, um, you know, women would wake up an extra hour or more um, to do their hair according to Marine Corps regulations, which struck me as just... Uh, you know, absurd mm -hmm. uh, that, that the regulations were so uh, detail-oriented, far more so than, than the other branches of service, that, you know, you'd be punished if a bobby pin was sticking out of your bun, right? And interestingly and so, enough, you, you're evaluated on your physical presentation to a greater degree than your physical fitness presentation, right? So that that's interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thought, what does this have to do with war fighting? Right. What does this have to do with being combat ready? Right. It really threw me. And, you know, I, I didn't realize how naive I was, that actually that was the point I, I, I found, I think, in the in the long term, is that um, this was another way of separating women from mm -hmm. what I call the real Marine Corps. Well, um, so let's talk about so, that. So, you know, we were just... Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that, because I find that, that you not only experienced double standards when you were at OCS, which is officer candidate school is literally your first training and your first hands-on experience in the Marine Corps. So you not only observe these double standards, but then you observe um, the really interesting predicament of women Marines and women candidates who are falling right into that trap. So... Uh, not a lot of concern being demonstrated by a lot of the female Marines or female um, candidates that you're training with about having these double standards. And then when you get to the basic school, which is your follow-on training, you write that 
that the um, uniform regulations then sort of that carries over to how people are dressing for liberty, which is what we do when we're off duty. It's our time off, right? So t- talk to me about your experiences. Why do you think women in the Marine Corps, because there are so few of us, you would think it would make it easier for us to band together. Why do you think the culture makes it so divisive and that women tend to fall right into the trap that the Marine Corps kind of sets, if you will? Sure, I mean, I'm not entirely, uh, I I wasn't aware of this as I was going through it. I think it took years of of thinking about it, you know. So in in retrospect, I think what was happening, you know, I was in my early 20s at the time, was this this concept of weakness by association. Mm. So it was very, uh, you know, being with other women, there were so few of us. I mean, at that point, it was, I think, 6% of the officer corps was was female. And and now, correct me if I'm wrong, it might be 7%, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's so few of us. And so... Um, you know, if you were sort of in a clump of of women, you would all be called weak. Together, you would all be right. called, you know, Marine Corps' favorite word, nasty, right? right. Uh, you you would be otherized. You would just you would you would not belong. You wouldn't belong on that poster, <laughs> the Marine Corps recruiting poster. And so, and so we we segregated or separated ourselves from one another, women. Um, again, consciously or unconsciously, right. not so sure, but it, it was happening in order not to to be associated with the other weak mm-hmm. ones. And, um, you know, such a hurtful thing because, of course, what most of us needed, certainly what I needed, was to be lifted up by my fellow female Marines, not to be put down by them. Um, and I think had I had more of that support, I wouldn't have, have faltered or floundered, um, particularly, you know, internally as much as I did during those years. Uh, with, with things like, uh, you know, liberty... Uniform regulations. I found it sort of amusing because the Marine Corps was so strict in terms of what we could or couldn't wear. Um, but I found, you know, women being sexually objectified um, with what they chose to wear. Um, I, you know, I described I described some of my female peers as kind of falling into this eye candy. Um, objectification, and I, and I realized at the time also it wasn't so simple, right? It wasn't. It, it was not that they were choosing to be sexualized, objectified, or harassed. This was just kind of the way things were. Right. You couldn't. You couldn't win if you were wearing, you know, suits, and you couldn't win if you were wearing, you know, collars that, or or you know, shirts that plunged, right? right? Like it didn't matter because either way you wouldn't belong. Um, you know, so I had I had a roommate. I write I write a, a chapter in which. A roommate of mine, we were all asleep. It was late one night, and uh, one of the guys down the hall, he was very drunk, a uh, very big guy, and he barged in through the door, crawled into bed with my roommate, and probably would have assaulted her. And I, it was it was a very surreal scene because the three of us, we, there were four of us to a room, we were lying in bed in our different bunks, and I was the only one who was awake and, uh, you know, asking my roommate, are you okay? Knowing full well, she's probably not okay. There's a ginormous guy in her right. bed, and she kept on telling me, "Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've got this. I've got this." Um, you know, so giving her that agency to deal with this drunken, predatory man in her bed, you know, she finally got him out. But we never talked about it after that. And she it, just, just kind of rolls silence. her eyes, right? She just kind of rolls her eyes as Absolutely. if that's something that should be accepted because it becomes normal and i think that's what you just alluded to becomes normal and therefore we just we accept it yeah and i I knew she wasn't okay one one isn't just okay with that kind of behavior 
Um, but I think that she had come to terms with the fact that it was it was just kind of par for the course. That's the way things were. So, you know, the next day, you know, and I don't even know if my other roommates were conscious of what had happened. I, I brought it up with a fellow male lieutenant, and he very quickly shut me up um, and alluded to, you know, me ruining ruining another good man's career, which is, which is a, a line I heard many times uh, when I was a Marine officer. It's um, interesting because in the Marine sh- Corps... call out that behavior. Yeah, we talk a lot about maintaining good order and discipline, and that becomes an especially uh, contentious point when we're talking about sexual assaults in the military and sexual harassment. We talk a lot about maintaining good order and discipline, and yet we don't do a lot to sort of put the shoes of the person who's been the victim of those things <coughs> on so that we can really have empathy. And so I think it's a very interesting culture in that we tend to empathize more with the person who's being accused rather than with the person who's saying, hey, look, this happened to me, and it's really hard for me to talk to you about it, but I'm bringing it forward for that very purpose. So interesting, because in your book, one of the things that also stands out to me is that there's a big discrepancy between how sex is viewed for men versus female Marines. And so you write a lot about how um, the men who you served with were were sort of living this double life, not all of them, but many of them, living a double life uh, in a way that women certainly would never be able to. And I'd like to read another passage, if you don't mind, and get your thoughts. And essentially what you say is uh, these men were in all sorts of deep personal shit wearing various layers of denial. Some were simply setting aside adult responsibilities or feeling the rumblings of early midlife. Others had personalities that were split in two. Most of them were senior career Marines in the kind of emotional turmoil that required extensive soul-searching and a fire team of therapists to sort out. Most of them would never bother. So can you tell me about what prompted you to write that and, and about the experiences that you had and how you observed kind of the difference between men and women and how sex was observed? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think this goes back to the title also, Unbecoming, where, you know, I, I was surrounded by male Marines, as, as all of us who are women were, um, in every unit I went to. Uh, some were a little more integrated than others with women. But, um, you know, most of my friends were men, uh, just by sheer numbers. Um, and, you know, at some point, I found myself also becoming sexually involved in in uh, in relationships that you know I wasn't all that thrilled about to be honest. Um, I didn't have too many sort of close sexual relationships um, that I could I could sort of be proud about in mm-hmm. retrospect. But um, it was I think at some point I'd kind of given up on this idea that um, that the Marine Corps' core values, honor, courage, and commitment really translated to kind of the day-to-day uh, behavior of of men in the Marines. And um, when I, you know, when I met Marines who were married but not telling me they were married and I ended up sleeping with them, you know, this became a real habit, actually. And I, it, as I, you know, when I left the Marine Corps and I started talking to a lot of other Marines, I realized how common that experience was as well, this kind of secret life, double life that many men um, whom I met were, were leading. And, and, and the, I know the passage that you, that you read, um, I write about in a chapter about being deployed to Thailand, right. which is what you know, thousands of Marines do annually. Um, and 
you know, as, as most Americans know, Thailand is the site of enormous uh, kind of like massive scale commercial sexual exploitation, sexual trafficking. And the U.S. military engages in that, uh, certainly not on paper, but it is right. uh, it is as well known as as, you know, what happens in Las Vegas stays right. in Las Vegas. And so um, and it is so so widely known. Right. This is this is not just my experience. This mm -hmm. is the marine experience. And so it was very shocking for me to see and, and with my own eyes. This mm -hmm. was sort of something I heard about, but to see with my own eyes, Marines I knew who um, had families back home, um, just engaging, engaging in sex with, with local sex workers who, as I remind people, were not just women, adult women, but also girls, right. teenage girls. And so, you know, it broke, it broke my heart, um, mostly because I, I was myself kind of living a double life at that time you know i wasn't sure do i identify more with the the marine men who are doing this stuff or do i identify more with the women and girls in thailand who i see uh, being exploited right. and in this again massive scale um economic exploitation and so um there was a huge disconnect for me at that point i felt i felt like very much that my my Kind of my internal compass was uh, <laughs> was breaking, you know, my moral compass. Um, and while uh, while my sort of participation in that uh, world of trafficking was as an observer, um, I still felt very responsible right. and guilty in right. some sense for wearing the uniform and seeing night after night just thousands of Marines and sailors engaging in this harmful activity and not realizing how they were contributing to yeah. harming other human beings. And not only harmful activity, but an activity that for a lot of men is viewed as sort of a rite of passage. I mean, there's a reason that we pull our ships into the liberty ports we pull into, right? And you, you talked about the fact that there's this availability to a population of young girls and young women, and they're there for a reason. And so... Um, you know, I, I had the same experience having been on a Marine Expeditionary Unit in that I observed sort of how this was normal and people looked the other way and there was a reason that we were pulling into these ports and it certainly wasn't for the local economy. Um, but I also observed how in the Marine Corps in particular, the most conservative of all of the military branches, that sex is used as a way to prop up sort of this hyper-masculine identity that Marines have, male Marines have, but at the same time, it's used as a form of uh, shame. You know, it's used to specifically shame female Marines mm -hmm. to conform to these artificial standards. And so I, mm -hmm. I w was crushed when I was reading your book because you talk a lot about this sort of self-driven, sex-driven uh, sex self-hatred that you experienced while the men around you are just sort of blissfully ignorant of any of that, and they never had to deal with that sort of experience. And then that sort of um, propels you to have these other experiences where you're struggling with that moral compass. So can you talk to me about your perceptions about how sex is used kind of as a weapon against female Marines and how you perceive that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is this is where it becomes very personal because... I walked away from 
five years in the Marine Corps with a lot of sexual shame, and that's not something that I was entirely conscious of growing up um, with. I, uh, yeah, I love how you describe that, that that predicament that women in the Marine Corps are in. I, I was so. Uh, in terms of my self-scrutiny, it mm-hmm. was so intense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes, men were doing any number of things, m- married or single, right? They were free to sort of explore the limits of their manhood and their sexuality, whatever that meant to them or to whatever the society was telling them. For me, if I, you know, had one moral transgression, if I experimented in any way, it wasn't just, you know, the Marine Corps that shamed me. I personally shamed myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt so guilty. Um, and so, you know, there was a double, double standard in terms of that self-analysis and self-hatred as well. Um, you know, and I, I struggled to figure out sort of what was the right thing to do in this right. situation. And, you know, I was, I was a single person, um, you know, it was a time in my life where I was also trying to figure out who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I identified as bisexual, but it was very, very much in the closet in the, in the Marine Corps, which certainly at the time was a very homophobic institution, um, arguably well, it a was little less so Right now, at the tail end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right at the tail end yeah. of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So, I mean, you had to be yeah. closeted, right? That was part of the experience. You really did. Yeah, and, you know, I remember as a junior officer, as a lieutenant and a captain, I, I looked the other way when, when there were Marines in my own units who were, you know, very clearly gay or bisexual, and because it didn't matter to me. I didn't want to enforce an unjust policy. That's just not how I operated. I thought it was an absurd policy that, that contributed to, to a lack of good order and discipline and, you know, wanted to encourage everyone to be, to be welcome, right? Um, but um, when it came to sort of my own... Um, my own personal relationships, uh, you know, it was it, it certainly was very risky. And, and when I was with a woman um, and it, it uh, came to the attention of higher-ups, uh, yeah, absolutely, my career was at risk. And uh, I kind of threw that back in my commanding officer's face by, by alluding to his very likely adultery mm-hmm. um, and certainly the adultery of all the, the, the men I had observed out in Thailand, uh, cheating on their families, their wives, and, and their—I suppose you don't cheat on one's kids, but cheating on your 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 wives, Family, your sure. wives, um, it, your families. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I had I had this sense of kind of—I don't know if justice is too dramatic a term, but you know, if you're if you're going to bring me down, then you really need to acknowledge how other people are being harmed, and certainly I wasn't harming anybody right. by you know sleeping with another woman, so. So, uh, you know, on that note, we talk a lot about how there are so few of us. We talked about the fact that women Marines tend not to be able to band together because the system isn't set up to allow it. And that leaves you in a really lonely position. So as you're going through all of these experiences and you are feeling all these conflicting emotions and you're experiencing cognitive dissonance because of the honor, courage and commitment versus what you're seeing while you're deployed, did you feel like you were alone and that, um, you know, as a as a woman, you were sort of the only person having these feelings and these experiences? I did feel alone. I, I had a couple of close friends who, um, just because of the way they were raised, I think culturally, uh, how they grew up, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I had a friend who was Korean-American and gay and very much in the closet, uh, my closest friend in the Marines. I had another friend who was, who was Jewish and um, also, and therefore, a religious minority in, in the Marine Corps. Um, and so there was, there was some sort of like common thread in terms of our experiences as marginalized people in the Marines. Um, and I think we were very quiet about what made us different in some ways. I mean, you, you know, as a, the thing about being a woman or a woman of color in the Marines is, you know, you, you, you can't hide, you can't erase your skin color, you certainly right. can't erase your gender, right. um, that it will always be the first thing that most Marines see about you and, and either uh, use as a, a source of harm or um, a reason to pick on you. So... Um, but I was alone. I, I think that particularly in a place like East Asia, um, I leaned a little bit on the fact that there was this world around me, um, you know, that my, my parents, my family uh, was, was actually very much like the world around me, right? That there were millions and millions of people um, in this place that were not Marines, mm-hmm. um, that b- believed in, in values that... Um, that I knew were integral to the way I saw the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I could never just rely on marine culture to take care of me, yeah. right? I had to think about what made me different to, to lift me up. I had to, you know, whether it was my, my ethnicity, um, my gender, my sexual orientation, the things that made me different and therefore a liability in the Marine Corps were also the things that, you know, in my darkest hours were the things that uplifted me, reminded me why I was special, right. why I mattered, and how I could also help other people. So, so I love that, hearing that. that. Mm-hmm. I love hearing that because what, what you do throughout the book is you reference that you were in this place that was so hard to navigate alone. But at the same time, you're in that place because you always maintain close contact with your humanity. And you always have empathy for the people around you and their experiences, even though they are marginalized by the service that you are a part of. So I think that's really, uh, it's interesting, and it's something that struck me throughout your reading your memoir. Um, When you went to be uh, the one woman in the infantry uh, training arena, one of your experiences about how it just becomes normal to denigrate women and and female physiology stuck out at me, and I I just want to highlight it really quickly and get your thoughts. So... You said, my infantry learning curve on matters of sex and gender was steep, and I was rapidly taking mental notes. During one top-level briefing among officers in the school, my captain diagnosed the problem of several young Marines in our company not performing up to the core standards as vaginosis. It was another level of slur, as if the darkest, foulest thing one could be, furthest from the tribe of real men, was the smelly, itchy mess of infection in the damp nether regions of a she-human. So talk to me about that experience and tell me what it was like. I mean, you know, again, it's about isolation. You, You join this service to be part of something bigger than just yourself. You join to be part of a tribe, and yet... Throughout your career here, you're always sort of on the margin observing how other people think it's normal to denigrate women. So tell me about that experience and how you got through that. Yeah, it's, you know, that passage is really interesting for me because the the officer who was talking about vaginosis and 
really denigrating women uh, by speaking. And also, you know, he's speaking about women who were very junior to him. Mm -hmm. You know, that was sort of it was um, it was degrading on so many levels. He was a person I would call one of the very good guys in the end. Crazy. And so, and I like to point that out because sometimes we think it's only like the, the, the real sexists, you know, like the really bad dudes, the predators mm -hmm. who are engaging in that kind of language. When in fact it is, it is literally the soup you drink, the air you breathe. Uh, you know, none of us even flinched when he said that. I flinched on the inside, but I don't think I did on the outside. Of course, you know, I was junior in rank and it wasn't, it wasn't my place, uh, which is a horrible thing. But um, that kind of language, that kind of behavior was really, I saw it in every unit, um, particularly in, in the infantry, but, but not always. Um, it was really, it was really how people talked. It was really how men talked. Mm -hmm. And women, you alluded this, to this earlier, but you know, women took part in these activities mostly as observers. Um, but you know, were they willing participants? Mm -hmm. Th that's where it gets complicated. You know, women who went to strip clubs with the guys, right? I mean, it's it's kind of it's hard to imagine why a woman would do that, um, and yet the pressure to conform, Absolutely. to not stick out, to not be seen as weak, also required that you in some way participate in misogyny. Right. And and that was something I found, it was so common to women across the services and something we don't talk about because there's, there's such, I think there's shame in it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's possibly regret, um, you know, possibly feelings of guilt, not really knowing to what extent we participated in harm and right. uh, harming one another. It, you know, this is like the sort of the quiet personal stuff that might eat away at us when we get really reflective. Um, but it's really, it's important. It's important to think about and, and to also heal. Uh, yeah. I think it causes, you know, uh, enormous rifts in how we see one another and ourselves, you know, whether it's misogyny of other against other women or, or even self-hatred, as subtle as it might be. Yeah, you know, you talk uh, a lot about shame in your book. Um, and in fact, if I, if I had an electronic copy, I would have done a word search for how many times it appears. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that jokingly, but I have to tell you how much I admire the fact that you actually delve into these types of feelings so much. Because I think it's so much easier for people to leave the service, particularly women. One of the things that astounds me to this day is that even after the Marines United scandal where uh, photos of female Marines and family members in you know, little to no clothing were being sent around on the Internet by male Marines. Even after that scandal, there were not a whole lot of female Marines who were out of the Marine Corps who were willing to come forward, much less female Marines who were in the service. And so I think uh, the fact that you've been willing to sort of step back and do this uh, internal soul searching to figure out how your actions might have contributed to this whole culture is noteworthy because I think it's way easier and it's more common for a lot of senior females to get out of the Marines thinking, I'm going to maintain the way that I always have and I'm going to project that the Marine Corps was amazing and I never had these experiences. And all that does is it serves to let down the women who are in who are subordinate and junior to us. So I have to applaud you for that. Um, Carl Jung once wrote that shame is a soul-eating emotion. And I absolutely think that's true. 
but I wanted to get your thoughts as you think about your veteran experience. Tell me about what it was like to sort of move from active duty, dealing with these struggles and these challenges and this internal soul searching to then getting out and wanting to be part of the veteran community and, and still dealing with the same culture. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, first I just wanted to respond to all your observations on shame. I think that it was important for me to to do the hard work of exploring what I had felt during those years. And it took, you know, I didn't write this the day I got out of the Marine sure. Corps. I wouldn't have been able to because I was filled with so much shame and also so much rage and not, and not able to understand why I felt those things. Right. Um, if I could even acknowledge them, I don't think I, I don't think I could even put words to those feelings at the time. They were so strong and overwhelming. Um, but when I was writing, you know, a decade later uh, about these feelings, it felt really important to come clean in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I needed to confess to anybody else. I needed to confess to myself, and not in a sort of self-flagellating way, but that this this is the experience I had. And I knew on some level, it was an instinctual thing, that this experience was not entirely a unique one. That's right. That, uh, right, that the silence among women who are serving um, is, a very, is a very common life experience, um, that it is a, not just a coping tool, but a survival mechanism. And so if I could begin to talk about some of the most private things that had happened to me that I had engaged in, um, that I was still carrying, I was carrying the weight, the shame of that for so many years. And it occurred to me very recently, even in the last six months or so, that I don't need to carry that shame That's anymore. Right. It is not my shame to carry. Right. It is not my shame to carry. Shame is mostly inflicted upon us by others. Absolutely. In power. Yes. Right. And so I needed to, I needed to work on that. It took me about 10 or 15 years, you know, since my first day in the Marines to finally let some of that weight go mm-hmm. and and to say that out loud and you know I just hope that other women who have served or who you know women in other institutions in which they are one of the few um, can really hear that you know if they are feeling some of these experiences it is liberating to acknowledge that you, you were part of the problem but now you want to be part of a solution um, it is liberating but it is hard work as you mentioned um, tell me about how your Uh, relationships with your family have changed. One of the uh, passages of your book that I was really touched by was your mom's admission that she had been married when she was younger and that she found a way to escape this arranged marriage, um, which was really bound up by traditional views on sex in the culture. Um, But I know your relationships with your parents have been a struggle. So tell me about how that has changed because of your experiences here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, somebody pointed out recently to me, even though I wrote the book, it, that I start the book with my mother and I end with my mother right. in a way. Right. Um, you know, she's such a huge force in my life. Um, but in many ways, I don't think I would have done the work that I did when I got out of the Marines were it not for my mother. My mother is the person I kind of conjured up when I had my most crippling moments in the Marines. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had the soul search so deeply at, you know, at the School of Infantry when 
there was this lieutenant assigned to my company. I was a company commander, and he was se sexually harassing the women in my unit. And uh, uh, it was it was such an awful experience. Um, and I knew that holding him accountable was going to be like career suicide for me. That's right. Um, because the command protected him and swept the harassment allegations under the rug. And so this was one of those moments I, I had to really reflect on what, what, what does real honor, real courage, and real commitment yeah. look like, right? It, it, uh, even if it means sacrificing my career, even if it means not being a, uh, a Marine, not getting awards for my work, not, you know, not getting any, any recognition, except knowing that maybe I've done the right thing in this situation. So I sat one of my sergeants down, and she, and she was my moral compass that day. I remember I'd, I had sought help from base legal, from equal opportunity. Um, you know, I had been told to get a restraining order against this lieutenant. It was, it was a very scary time. So I sat my female sergeant down, and she said, ma'am, you're the only one who can do something about this. You know, basically no we pressure. have no power as no pressure. NCOs. <laughs> No pressure. Yeah. You know, but it was a little bit like looking at your little sister, right? Right. And, and saying, well, there was, it wasn't even a question in my mind right. at that point. I was like, of course I'll do this, right? Of course I will. So I filed an outside investigation against this lieutenant. And, yeah, the threats came, you know, the, and years and years of nightmares that occasionally I still have. So, um, and, and I wouldn't have done it any differently. Mm -hmm. You know, I... Uh, it's it's really scary doing the right thing in the Marines when when you are engaging with powerful people who do not want to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, but that's when I I again conjured up my mother. Like my mother, I literally said she would not, she did not raise me to put up with this BS, right? And um, you know, my mother had been through so many trials herself a generation and a half ago, um, in India, no less, where arguably women are up against even more battles. It's just, it's a more traditional society. And so, yeah, she was in, in a very abusive marriage and didn't have the language to really describe what was happening to her, didn't have the familial support. Um, and she fled, she escaped. She was lucky to be able to do that. And, you know, she had the gumption to do it and then to even cross the Atlantic and start her life all over again in the United States where she met my dad. So she's, she's sort of the first, the first survivor I met of, uh, violence against women. And it was really, it meant a lot to write this memoir in part to explain how proud I am of her for what she did. Cause I still don't think she fully realizes of what a role model she is for, um, for women and girls. Um, and you know, because I watched, I watched her carry around a lot of shame too, growing up. And I didn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the pain. I didn't understand why she was in pain. Um, and, and so as, you as write, her daughter, you write about the fact that there wasn't a language that your mom could use to talk about those things. But I'm curious. Absolutely. Does yeah. your mom recognize in you the courage and the strength that she demonstrated, or does she not see it because she's not willing to see it in herself? Have you ever explored that with her? A little bit, a little bit. I, she's she's more silent than I am about about a lot of this. I think that. Um, I, I, I write about kind of taking taking on some of the weight. You know, like 
letting myself carry some of what I don't think she could or can carry now uh, that she's an older woman. Um, because I can. I'm happy to take on that that extra weight. Um, I do have the language. And it's one of the gifts of also coming to this country for her is, you know, giving me the education and surrounding me as best she could mm-hmm. with, you know, supportive people um, so that I could do what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and that I can use words like harassment, discrimination, assault, rape. These were words that were not encouraged um, in her culture. Right. I mean, they're barely encouraged in, in American society either. Right. But um, but still, there 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 is a, a noticeable difference in in how we address systemic discrimination here in the states. And you know, it's one of the reasons she she loves this country, and yeah. it's one of the reasons I think I am as passionate as I am about. Um, about trying to change institutions in the United States, sort of to live up to their ideals. Yeah. So she's she's very proud. She's very proud of this work. She, um, you know, it's again, it's hard for her to name to name these things that are happening, either right. to her or to me, right? Like the, I, I kind of came out in a sense when I wrote this book about some of the things that had happened to me, not just in the Marines, but in childhood, and we had never had that. Experience of sharing because right. it wasn't part of our culture. Right. So I didn't tell her when you know when someone assaulted me on the subway when I was a teenager. Right. I didn't tell her about these things, and because I, I I didn't know I didn't have a language when I was that mm-hmm. young. And uh, but I needed to tell her and my dad before the book came out. Right. And so they've been remarkably open and supportive. Um, you know, it has, I don't think it's been easy for them. I know they've shed a lot of tears over sure. kind of the amount that I've either been through or processed, you know. Um, but there, I think, I like to say, you know, because Indian culture is a, is a stubborn culture like mm-hmm. most, but, um, you know, my parents used to be much more concerned with things like like the titles I would earn mm-hmm. or, you know, the schools I would go to and kind of the outward outward manifestation of success, right? But not so anymore. Now they, I think they're proud of this, of what I've written because they are saying how I, how I want to help people. Sure. That's what they are connecting with. It's really lovely. I'm, I'm proud of them for that, for Good. getting it. I'm glad to hear that yeah. because I, I know that uh, it can be really, really challenging to, to go through these experiences and not have a reliable support network to, uh, to be able to talk to, and uh, I know your parents are very proud of you, I, and I know that they maybe are not communicative of that the way that you would want them to be at times, but I know they are. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I admire most about you and that really came through in reading your memoir is that you are a questioner. You are one of those very rare people who doesn't fall subject to willful blindness. You don't look the other way when you see something is not right and you ask questions. Um, And coming from the Marine Corps culture, very authoritative, very hierarchical, uh, it is not a culture that rewards people or encourages people to ask questions about systematic issues like discrimination, harassment, et cetera. So I just read a really interesting Harvard Business Review article, and it talks about 
uh, how organizations that tend to stifle constructive dissent are more likely to experience big abuses of power. And I think you can see that playing out in the Marine Corps in particular. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how did your experiences in dealing with gender and dealing with sexuality in the Marine Corps, how did those experiences then inform your SWAN, your Service, Women, uh, Service Women's Action Network uh, efforts? Can you talk about that a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my, my path into activism is... Um, is not unique in a lot of ways. I think that it, in part it was fueled by an outrage that these experiences I had um, were not unique. They were very common to many women, as I discovered when I, when I left the Marines and I started talking to other women veterans across all the service branches and different eras of service, um, different background. I mean, it was, it was a very common experience that all, all women I had talked to had experienced some form of discrimination, and most had experienced harassment, and many had experienced assault. And that um, that affirmation that we had experienced something that was uh, that desperately needed to be addressed and acknowledged, and then changed, fueled fueled the desire to to take these issues to Capitol Hill and demand reform and. Um, you know, it was it was an interesting time. Um, this was now about ten years ago, uh, when you know Toronto Burke had started Me Too activism, but it wouldn't be known until until Hollywood took that up just a couple of years ago. Um, but women had served in Iraq and Afghanistan in, in great numbers at that point. You know, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, uh, and you know thousands upon thousands, and yet weren't being um, acknowledged for their service right. overseas or for, for combat service. And so I feel like there was a shift in American society. Um, and you sort of saw it through the media and even, you know, casual conversations with people traveling across the country that we were at war very clearly in some very dangerous parts of the world, and young men and women were volunteering for service for, for whatever reason. Regardless of your politics, most Americans got this sense that we should support these young people. And women were quite possibly bearing twice the burden by volunteering for combat service and exposing themselves to uh, very possible harassment or assault. And so um, Swan rode that wave of, of activism and interest, I think, by the American people um, in supporting women in uniform. And we spoke really unapologetically, you know, very fiercely to elected officials until they paid attention. And, you know, taking, taking military leaders and VA leaders to court also, demanding that policies change to support service women was definitely part of the strategy. That, you know, we weren't going to wait for the next generation to be hurt or to be denied access to assignments they were qualified for. And we we're going we to change it now. And so... You what know, the, was it like to take lawsuit. on? Mm-hmm. But what was it like to take on the big beast of the Department of Defense with a topic that no one yeah. in the Department of Defense wanted to even acknowledge was was there? <clears throat> what was it like? I mean, it was it's surreal. I suppose it was. Um, you know, survivors had been coming out of the woodwork, stepping forward 
testifying before committees on the Hill for decades. Mm -hmm. I remember being uh, a teenager, a young adult, you know, when tailhook happened. Right. That was kind of my first consciousness of this thing called sexual assault in the military. Um, but but so much had happened before tailhook too, and so. You know, there was, it, it wasn't new information that we were bringing to military leadership or to the media, right? But it was, it was more kind of enough is enough. I mean, come on, right? This is, uh, and, and so with social media, with media, with litigation, sort of with all the tools one could possibly use as an activist, we just were relentless. What, what was it like going, going up against top military brass? Right. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it's very odd looking at really powerful men like that and sometimes realizing they don't have a clue. Like, they right. did not have a clue what was going on in their own institutions. You know, they had completely checked out. Um, and these are you know, brilliant war fighters. These right. are men who have been responsible for, you know, commanding and protecting troops on the battlefield for Decades, but let me ask them. you, and uh, let's let's focus on that one thing for just a second, because I think that that's a really important point. We talked earlier about how it is really difficult for people to acknowledge how they contribute to a systemic denigration of a, a people, right? And what you just alluded to is the fact that these men, and they are mostly men, mostly white men, they have maintained a willful blindness to this issue for forever. But in having to really come up with a solution to fix the problem, that would require them to look within to see how they had either been so blind as to not wanting to see what was happening or they contributed themselves to the problem. So I think that that's a really interesting point to make just because... Uh, we still haven't fixed the problem with harassment, retaliation, and assault in the military. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you um, share this experience, but I feel like officers in the military have been kind of uh, inculcated with this idea that, you know, the, the, the failures in our own units are our leadership failures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this... Uh, it's sort of an encouragement to take responsibility for for whatever happens in one's unit, except that That's right. when it comes to issues like harassment That's and right. assault, That's right. I saw the exact opposite happening. Right. And I thought, hey, how is it that one can be trained, you know, since OCS, TBS, all of these right. leadership training environments, how can one then, again, you're, I mean, to use your term, willful blindness, how can one completely check out... Right. Uh, on these very serious life and death issues like harassment and assault. I mean, it requires... So, I mean, I guess I'll answer by saying one person I was moved by was a two-star general, um, Gary Patton, who, you know, has a career, I'm sure, that is... One could find fault with him at various points, just like one could with anybody. But what impressed me when he took over the Sexual Assault Prevention Response Office, which is the Pentagon's sexual assault unit, basically, was he had, at that point, kind of come out of the closet, in a sense, about his own post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the very few general officers who allowed himself to be emotionally vulnerable 
right. uh, really took charge of talking about uh, mental health in the in, in it was the army, but it, throughout the military. And when he took the post at Sapro, he made the connection. I think on a very personal level between his trauma, the trauma his mm. troops had experienced in combat, and the trauma experienced by women and men who had experienced sexual assault and sexual harassment. He connected those dots because he had done the deep work of exploring his own post-traumatic stress. Mm. I, th I thought there was something in there, you know, worth acknowledging because at the end of the day, pain is pain, right? Now, right. Sy systems contribute to sexual assault and harassment in very specific ways, right? So that I, I, these are not, you know, complete parallels, but um, but still, when a leader is able to do emotional work, absolutely, um, to acknowledge whatever he has been through in his life, I mean, it might be a family issue, it might be some yes. other kind of loss, he will get closer to... To, to this issue as well, to acknowledging the humanity Absolutely. of a person who's experienced and assault I love or that harassment. Because what you're talking about is emotional intelligence, which is not something that we teach leaders in the military. And I think, you know, in hindsight, recognizing now what I was missing when I was in, I recognize that there was really no way for me to develop true caring relationships with my subordinates because they saw me as this person of... Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I was always strong. I could never be human. I could never have problems. They could never relate to me. And so I think what you're saying about emotional intelligence is spot on. If if you had a magic wand in the one minute we have left, if you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your experience or the experience of women in the military and the Marine Corps specifically today, what would it be? No pressure. <laughs> I would... I mean, look, it's already happening. You know, I'm so thrilled that combat assignments are now open to women. I, I if, if that had been possible when I was in, I never would have left. I think I would have found enough reason to stay yeah. in. You know, th those denial, that, 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 that systemic legal denial of women's job opportunities contributed to a climate of harassment and assault in the Marines when I was in. And, and it's still there, right, because the culture is still very misogynistic. But I am just so thrilled to see women trying out for these schools and these assignments. Um, I met a dad on the, on the plane yesterday, who, a Marine dad, who was just so proud of his daughter doing an assignment that, you know, was just off limits to me when I was in. And I thought, you know, go, girl. Like, this is incredible. This is just great. But we need more women. We need That's right. so many more women in the Marines and the other branches for the culture to change. Well, I want to thank you. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to sit down with you and, and talk about your book. I have to tell you, I'm one of your biggest fans, one of your biggest supporters. I believe in you. I believe in everything you're doing, and I just applaud you for your courage. So thank you for being vulnerable and caring enough to write this so that women who follow in your footsteps don't have to experience the same issues. Thank you, Kate, and thanks for everything mm -hmm. you have done for Take women care. in the Marines and the military. Absolutely.